here we are, week three of Conduit for Change, where we're talking about human sexuality. Now, I have to tell you, this week has been extremely difficult. Honestly, when it comes to preaching, every week is difficult, but this week in particular has been more difficult to prepare for. The reality is that when it comes to our two previous conversations about racism and poverty, we can all agree that there is no room in the kingdom of God for these things. We may disagree on how to eliminate injustices like racism and poverty, but in the end, and for the most part, we are of one mind when it comes to our need to eliminate, to eliminate them. But when it comes to the global church's understanding of human sexuality, we are not of one mind, not even close. Some people in some churches take a more traditional understanding of human sexuality and are of the mindset that humanity was created to be in relationship between one man and one woman. There is a whole other side of the church known as the more progressive side of the church, which believes that heterosexuality, so in other words, our uh, traditional understanding of marriage between one man and one woman, is not the norm uh, for all of creation, and that we need to make room in our theology to be fully inclusive of all people in the LGBTQ community. Then there's a third side, most commonly known as the centrists. Centrists can either be traditional or progressive. The difference is that centrists make room to stand where they stand while also making room for those who disagree with them. So for example, a progressive person sitting in a more progressive church uh, or a centrist person sitting in a more progressive church is okay with the fact that down the street there is another church with the same denomination, uh, within the same denomination that is more traditional in their understanding of human sexuality. The centrist, in other words, is willing to make room for the other as long as room is made for them as well. And then outside of these three categories, there are even more categories that people divide themselves into trying to figure out where they stand on the issue of human sexuality. Does all of this make sense? If your answer is kind of or even no, then you are beginning to understand just how difficult it is for the church to have a conversation about human sexuality. We as Christians, we as United Methodists, we as Americans, and even we as Southerners are not of one mind, not even close, which is what has made this week so difficult to prepare for. I have to tell you, I have prepared, I have read, I have studied, I've had conversations with colleagues of mine in preparation for this sermon, probably more so than than most other sermons. I've also reached out to friends who have had to deal with the issue of human sexuality, and I've tried to listen to their stories and tried putting myself in their shoes concerning some of the things they've experienced, and I've done this on both sides of the argument. I've listened to other preachers. I've read books, both old and new. I've listened to podcasts. I've read a variety of commentaries, even those that I disagreed with, and I even interrogated different versions of the Bible. And you have to understand that while these are all things I did this week in preparation for today's sermon cast, I have been doing this work for years, and I've been trying to make sense of what the Bible says, making sure to be ready to answer any pushback and any questions that I might receive, making sure that my heart is at peace, regardless of what other preachers or churches or even other Christians have to say about me when it comes to my stance on human sexuality. And I have to tell you, my heart is at peace which is why we're having this conversation today. So here's how we're going to tackle this. First, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Garrett, and I want to share some stories of some real people who have been hurt by the church. And my hope through this is that to show you that how we act 
What we say and even how we as Christians talk about human sexuality matters. And it has the ability to deeply hurt people and even cause them to to question their identity in Jesus. So we're going to begin there. Following my conversation with Garrett, we will shift our conversation to the the main the seven main scriptures that people use to defend an anti-LGBTQ human sexual uh, understanding of human sexuality. There we will discuss what those scriptures mean and what they actually say. And as we do, my goal is not to change your mind about scripture, but to hopefully offer you a different way of approaching and understanding the Bible. Because at least for me and many theologians and many other pastors, The Bible and our approach of it is not so black and white as we usually see it. And then from there, we'll have a difficult and honest conversation about where the United Methodist Church stands today and where it has been in the past by looking at the United Methodist Book of Discipline, which is the instrument for setting forth laws, plan, polity, and processes by which the United Methodist Church governs itself. And then from there, hopefully having covered as many questions as you might have, We're going to move into what, for me, is the easier part of the sermon cast. I will be open and transparent about my stance on human sexuality and what kind of church I feel God has called us at Mid-City Church to be. We've got a lot to cover, uh, and that's going to take us a while, but I promise every bit of it will be worth it. You ready? Let's begin. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been uh, a fun series, I know, for us as a church to be able to journey through. And this is the week that I've been looking forward to, especially getting to be in conversation with you. I've known you for for a couple of years now. I've known your family even longer. And um, I just, uh, when we were, when we knew we were having this conversation, you were the person that I wanted to reach out to. And so thank you for being on this uh, sermon cast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy 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 to share my story. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, one of the things that has become a tradition for us on the sermon cast is instead of me kind of coming up with a bio of the person joining us, we like to invite the person to share about themselves and what things they want to share about themselves. So, Garrett, who are you and what do you do? Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, am the owner at Circa 1857 here in in, in Mid-City. My husband and I also own a shop downtown uh, called Brass, which we just opened uh, on uh, December the 1st. Uh, And then newly, uh, I was just elected as the board uh, president of Mid-City Merchants uh, here in in the Mid-City community. And uh, so that's my professional, uh, you know, side. Uh, but uh, other than that, you know, I, I like just to support my local mid-city businesses, my local restaurants, uh, and so forth, and uh, try to try to play a, a good part in the community. Yeah, yeah, and and you do play a good part in the community. Um, I I'm I'm gonna brag on best. you for a second. Um, I'm gonna brag on you for a second, but you know, it's um, one of the things I've appreciated about you from the day I met you is how much you care not just about your businesses. Um, but you care about the community, you care about uh, the people who live in the community, and you care about helping everybody succeed and not just uh, your own success or circus success. And so I love well, that self-sacrificial heart you have. Yeah. Well, I certainly think all, all you know, it's all tied together. Yeah. Uh, everybody else's success is also mine. So uh, yeah. the, uh, the better the community can be, the better I can. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you got to lead by example. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I love that. And I'll throw a shameless plug 
if you haven't been to Circa or Brass, you should go. There's tons of awesome stuff. Uh, you, you'll love it. And everybody, uh, Garrett, Luke, everybody is just phenomenal. So I really encourage you all to, to go. You. Yeah. Well, uh, Garrett, one of the things, the other thing that we've been doing through this series is um, we have this belief that we all have to be on the same page as to what we're talking about. And so we have um, the first thing we do on this on this sermon cast is to really define the conversation. And so um, this week we're talking about human sexuality. And normally when we talk about human sexuality, the, the, the phrase that the acronym that gets thrown out is LGBTQ. Would you help us uh, understand just kind of your definition of um, not just that, but like what is it like when people say uh, I'm gay or I'm bi or like what does that mean in general? It's a loaded question. Well, I certainly think that, uh, you know, there, there's uh, quite a few letters now in the yeah. in the list, uh, which I think uh, any inclusivity is, is, is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, to me, I, I think that uh, it's just anybody that doesn't uh, feel that they fit in the societal heteronormative uh, uh, scenario or, you know, or, or position uh, that I think for so long um, – We've seen these sort of um, LGBT sort of revolutions periodically from, you know, the, the 60s when, you know, it was getting a little bit more uh, risque, you know, per se. Uh, but uh, even prior to that, you had little pockets of, of, of um, progress, uh, but we didn't really see a whole lot of it, I don't feel, uh, until, you know, the, the 2000s and, and yeah. onward. I mean, I, I think... Uh, that society has put at an early age um, the pressures on uh, kids to define their sexuality very early on. Uh, and I think that... I think I lost you. So sorry about that. All good. <laughs> it's all good. I, uh, I don't really know what happened. It just, uh, the computer just randomly, randomly crashed. Hmm. That's, technology is great and horrible at the same time, right? Right. Great. Well, uh, I where I um, forgot what I was exactly saying, but I guess we can just pick it back up. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, basically, I think that the that that uh, the LGBTQ um, plus um, applies, I think, to anybody okay. that that does not feel that they fit in a uh, heteronormative society. Uh, 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 idea or scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for that, um, definition and explanation. I think it's really, um, I think it's helpful to begin there and I'll share a little bit about my story in a little bit, um, with that, but, but I, I think it's, thank you for, for helping us begin there before I share any of my story or my experiences. I want to ask you, um, What's been your experience as a gay leader in our community? And and I share and I ask that question because uh, for me as a as a pastor and um, really as, as a pastor and as as a Christian, as my understanding of what it means to be a Christian, I think it's it's my and our job to help our community be more reflective of the kingdom of God. And so I'm constantly asking the question: Is there room for this in heaven? Is there room for this in the kingdom of God? And so when it comes to the treatment of uh, LGBTQ people in our community, um, I think that treatment is is wrong. 
and in many ways, it's wrong when it's uh, you know when it comes to homophobia, when it comes to the way uh, we treat um, um, people, and there is no room for those things. And so, um, I'm I'm curious, like I I as a straight man know that it is not easy to be gay, but I'm curious, like from your experience, like what's that experience like for you? You know, I'd say that. Uh... I'd say that I did not really have a whole lot of issues. Um, you know, I mean, I, I came out to the majority of my friends pretty early on uh, and that I never really felt uh, any of that pressure. Uh, I never personally felt um, that I lost any friends or, I mean, that was always a big concern is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with them about myself um, and that they might think of me differently or they might, Fortunately for me, that that was never really the case. It was still always a worry. Uh, that said, though, uh, in random scenarios, uh, there homophobia is unfortunately alive and well in in Baton Rouge in the world. Uh, you know, uh, and we can prob- we'll probably dabble on this a little bit later. But I um, about so I came out uh, to my family about three years ago, uh, so pretty recently. Uh, but that was after I got attacked at a Mardi Gras ball uh, for no reason. Uh, just a, a guy came up behind me and uh, said some said some nasty slurs, uh, uh, and then just started hitting me. Uh, you know, and and so uh, there was no provocation. There was there was nothing. It was flat out. I had never seen this guy. I was minding my own business. He came up from behind me and attacked me for no reason. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of led to one thing to another. And at that point, you know, when you've got uh, a minor concussion, you kind of have to come out uh, and say yeah. why, you know, why you were attacked. And uh, I knew we were going to be going to court and that we were going to be doing all of that. And so uh, it was just um, it was the catalyst for that, uh, uh, which was an unfortunate circumstance, but it worked out well in the end. Um but, you know, so, I mean, there, there is uh, a, a huge degree, uh, a huge level of homophobia still in Baton Rouge, uh, in Louisiana, in the South. I mean, I, I, you know, at Circa, we have our pride shirts and everything uh, that, I, that I love to wear uh, and support my community um, and tell everybody that, you know, you can be out and proud and loud and uh, whatever else. But uh, even still, there are still times and places that I just, I, I won't you know, wear it. Uh, my friends and I took our road trip uh, a couple of years ago um, where we did no interstate whatsoever. We took only the back roads. Uh, we thought we were going to see, you know, little town, small town America, and it was going to be, you know, this, this beautiful um, sort of romantic uh, uh, road trip. Uh, and instead, not instead, but in a lot of places, it occurred to me that I, you know, I wouldn't wear that shirt in this area. Uh, You know, I I certainly think uh, that my black friends and colleagues would have felt uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, when you're driving past and it's um, rebel flags constantly, uh, you know, it's that's a little unsettling, I think, for for anybody that does not fit in the stereotypical white community. Uh, And um, it's it's we've made a lot of progress there's still a lot more to be made though. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I, I, um, 
I, I can relate to that story of um, so many people in their experience w will will have some sort of experience of who I am does not belong here, whatever that community is, right? And I mean, that that's just to know that there is a part of you that is not welcome and a part of you that you cannot change. Like, like you know, like uh, the country club, right? Like if I wear the right clothes and I have the right money, I can get in. But when it comes to like a part of who I am that I cannot change and not be welcome for that, like it is, it, it hurts. Um, but at least for me, like it also causes me to question like, Am I less of a, a, a human because I don't fit in? Do I even want to fit in? Like, like there's just all these questions and, and thoughts that come up with when you get to a moment when you realize, yeah, it's, it's something about me that I cannot change that is the reason why I am not allowed or welcomed or seen as equal in these situations. And that's just yes. hard, hard to get. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I've been put in those situations – uh, I've kind of adopted the, well, you know, I don't care what you think attitude. Uh, you know, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a bit defiant in that, uh, mm. uh, scenario, uh, that the more you, uh, dislike me, the, the, the louder I'm going to get. Uh, and mm. so, uh, I, I can be uh, a bit petty sometimes. So I will go out <laughs> of my way, uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, rectify that issue and and and, yeah. and make sure that I'm good. If I want to be a part of something, I'm going to do it, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, yeah. That said, it still is always that little chip on the you know back of the shoulder mm -hmm. that's that's saying you know do I need to look over my shoulder? Am I going to get attacked again? Um, am I just going to subject myself to more issues than what it's worth? Um, you know, it, it's just. Uh, that's that's yeah. the fact of life, unfortunately, at the moment. Uh, that said, I, I'm, I'm very excited uh, to to see uh, kids. You know, Luke, uh, my husband, was a, a school teacher um, for uh, a few years, and the kids today, one, it's it's uh, I think really interesting that they don't care for the most part. Mm -hmm. They don't care if their if their teacher's gay. They don't care if their classmates are gay. It's just a, you know, we're, we're all here. Um, and I think that that's really uh, a good sign uh, to see that as we do progress as a society, uh, that it does matter less and less. Um, I hope it, you know, continues to, to move that way. And I, I think that it will. Um, I mean, I just saw, I didn't read the article, so I probably shouldn't quote it. But uh, I just saw a thing uh, today pop up on my phone. Uh, I believe from USA Today that had said that uh, in a new poll, it's uh, like 7.1% of the United mm. States uh, mm. uh, is identifies as LGBTQ. Um, yeah. and that, that's, a, that's a lot of people. If you're thinking that we have 350 million people that live here, and that's just their one study. I mean, I, I would be uh, curious. And again, I didn't read the article, so I don't know exactly where their number is coming from. Uh, but I, I would be shocked uh, if that number was not, in fact, much higher um, mm -hmm. uh, of people that perhaps just hasn't either come out or that, you know, weren't interviewed for their for their study. Um, yeah. But uh, I think that we're, we're making making progress. 
uh, in as a society. Uh, and I, I think that inclusion uh, is one of the most important things that we can uh, do as, as a community uh, to make sure that uh, everybody's included. You know, I don't understand half of people's, you know, different cultures or customs or anything like that, but I've always tried to open it up myself to them with open arms and, uh, and, and, and learn more. And, uh, you know, do I, do I understand it? No, but a lot of people don't understand me. So uh, yeah. we're, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that completely. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, ultimately what it boils down to and what I hear you saying is, um, at the end of the day, we're all people, all human beings. And, like that's what unites us as people, and that's what makes our humanity, uh, our humanness. And um, it's not about fitting into certain boxes. It's not about uh, do you fit into a social norm or do you fit. It's it's about you're a living, breathing person. And I, as a pastor, I would even say you're a child of God, and that's what gives us all the 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 ability to be accepted as equals and. Um, yeah, not the ability to check off some some sort of box, but yeah. I think you just muted yourself. There we go. Sorry, you were muted for that. I keep pressing buttons. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say is that I I I uh, as a person generally don't like to label myself as any one thing or another, um, but you know I recognize that they're important periodically. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think that as a as a society, uh, as we can kind of get away from uh, labels that are that are put upon us rather than self uh, indulged, um, the better we'll be. I mean, I, I would say that um, as a gay man here, I don't fit in with the stereotypical gay uh, yeah. crowd and, and vice versa. I think that the diversity in everybody's uh, sexuality and everybody's existence um, is a uh, thing to be to be celebrated uh, and to be to be joyous about, uh, rather than trying to say, "Oh, what exactly you know are you?" You know, uh, and I think that that's uh, I think that's important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I love you saying that because uh, one of our values at the church is kingdom diversity. And uh, for me, when we read through the book of Revelation, there's a part where John looks up at heaven and it says he sees a multitude of people um, that are different languages, tribes, like just more people than he can begin to count. And this idea of like the kingdom of God is more diverse than we can begin to imagine. And at the end of the day, at the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, it's not going to be like, well, you people fit here and you people go. It's everybody is in the same place because we're all one people and, and there's a diversity of people. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, we all exist and we're, yeah. we're all trying to, to, to do our part, I think, yeah. uh, for, for our lives and for yeah. our community and for our loved ones. And, um, I, I think, uh, the sooner that people are allowed to exist without having to, uh, identify as one thing or another and just be allowed to just be here and be present. Uh, I think, I think the world will be, uh, a bit of a better, better place. And I think we're headed there again. I think, you know, like I said a few minutes ago with kids today, uh, not really having to come out as much or not caring as much. Uh, I mean, a lot of my friends that have younger siblings um, or uh, colleagues of mine who've had kids uh, didn't really have to come out. It was just sort of a 
this is the way it is. You know, they come home and, 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 and he likes another boy or she likes another girl. And, um, that's just it. And it's never yeah. questioned. It's never, uh, and I, I think that's really, really exciting to see, uh, uh, as we move forward, as far as the, you don't, there's not, I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but the, the level of pressure of the weight on your shoulders, having to say, I've got to come out. This is a really tough choice. Uh, I think is a bit more fluid now, uh, yeah. where you don't quite have to have that, that interaction all the time. I think a lot of cases you, you, ex whether it be it's expressed on social media, uh, and so people just kind of pick it up or it's just expressed through your personality and people pick it up. Uh, I, I think it's really exciting to see that, that, um, that, that painful, uh, tense, you know, fear and conversation of, of coming out particularly, I think to your parents, mm -hmm. uh, I don't necessarily find is, is a whole, uh, issue. Uh, now, I mean, it, it, it certainly in a lot of cases it is. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I still talk to people that say that their family uh, just flat out won't won't speak to them or, or have disowned them. And, and that's that's tragic. Um, yeah. You know, so it's certainly not everybody. But I, I think um, it is it is growing. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that's that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that. So so let me ask you, I've taken a whole bunch of your time already, but let me ask you just one last question. Um, what can we, one is like, so I agree with you that we've made a lot of progress, but I think there's still a lot of progress left to be made. So what can we, one as, uh, people, <clears throat> excuse me, one uh, as people, what can we do? And two, like challenge me as a Christian, what can we do to, to make things better for the LGBTQ community here in Baton Rouge and everywhere? Well, I think, you know, like I just kind of dabbled on, I think just letting people exist without question, without fear. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Nina Simone, uh, had said, uh, quoted, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but uh, she was asked, what is freedom? And, and, and she said, freedom is no fear, mm. not having to worry that somebody's going to come after you, uh, whether it be socially, whether it be physically, just the, the idea that there's no fear, uh, is, is true freedom, I think. And I think that's going to be a good way to get, uh, society to, um, or for the LGBT community and any community for that matter, uh, to truly feel free and free to exist without persecution. Um, you know, I, I am curious to see, you know, like you mentioned at the very beginning with the Methodist Church in particular, uh, the there seems to be a little tug of war on, on which way to go. And I think it would be very tragic for the church to go the other route. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be taking a huge step back. I mean, I grew up in the Methodist Church um, and feel that it, for the most part, was always inclusive. Again, I, I mean, the church that we went to as kids was a bit more uh, conservative and a bit more uh, old school, I think, just given the population or the demographic that went, uh, being that I think the median age was like 70. Uh, so I, I think uh, that, um, that the church can offer a safe place for people, kids particularly, 
to to learn about themselves. Uh, but I think it starts with the with the scriptures and with the sermons, as far as um, you know. And, and you know better than me uh, what what it says. But um, I don't think that sexuality was ever mentioned in in the Bible, yeah. uh, at least without having to be interpreted as right. oh well, this is what he meant. Well, it's not what it says, right? Uh, you know, so I don't like to infer there about that it's it says this that that two men shouldn't lie together you know, whatever the, whatever the saying is, but, um, whatever the, the quote is, uh, but then nitpick, you know, it also has rules about, uh, eating certain foods, yeah. you know, but we here, particularly in Louisiana, we eat crawfish, right. You know, and we eat catfish. That's a, that's a, a you know, a dirty animal, a dirty mm-hmm. fish. And yet I believe that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Bible also says that, yep. uh, you know, that we shouldn't, shouldn't eat that, but, um, so it's, you can't really nitpick, uh, where, where, where it's going. And I think that that, uh, is where the church, uh, should play a role and just, uh, allow people to exist, allow people to have no fear, uh, of being, uh, on the wrong side. I mean, I think the biggest step, uh, to, uh, you know, in, in one of the biggest things you can do in Christianity is at least show up. You know, to to the church and and live a Christian life, live a Jesus um, uh, filled and inspired life, and uh, I think that that uh, is is the best thing that the the church can do uh, is allow people to express that in their own way yeah. uh, and learn uh, about Christianity and their faith in their own way without being told this is how it is. We used to accept gay marriage, and now we don't. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's I I don't I to me in my opinion. I don't know if that's the church's place. I mean, I guess people are looking for spiritual guidance and 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 guidance on a particular issue uh, in their community. Again, though, does does the Bible make that much of an argument right. to make it worth this much time and effort? You know, I, I think that uh, Jesus certainly speaks uh, far more about helping the poor and the needy uh, than he does about two men or two women. Uh, sleeping together, yeah. uh, or just having sharing a, a life and love together, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that that that's how one lives a a, 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 a Christian uh, life and an inspiring life uh, is to help those in need. And sometimes those in need are the gay community, they are the black community, they are the poor community, uh, etc. Uh, and uh, I think that's that's the biggest should be, in my opinion, the biggest mission uh, of, of uh, the Methodist Church or any mm-hmm. church uh, is to help those in need. And that applies to kids struggling with their sexuality. That applies to people that are stuck in poverty or addiction. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I, that, that, that's my two cents. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I, I agree with everything you just said. And, um, you know, you, you have helped me segue into the the second part of our podcast, uh, which will come up after our conversation about like, what does the scripture say and where does the church stand and, and really where I, where I stand and, and, um, I, I agree with you. Um, um, and so we're, we're going to dive into that next in our, in our sermon cast, but thank you so much for, well, I look forward to, uh, to hearing, hearing about it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm now that I've opened that can, uh, I'm curious <laughs> to, uh, curious to, to, to learn more about what it actually, uh, uh, dictates because I mean I, I do think you know that is the number one 
uh, thing that people uh, quote on is the Bible says this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it says a lot of things. Right. I don't know why why you get stuck up on on one. Yeah. Uh, just because it's a different lifestyle than yours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see the hear the second part. Yeah. Well, you'll be the first person to get the link. <laughs> ah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for for being a part of this conversation, uh, being here, giving me. Uh, you're a very busy person, so I thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I I uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope that uh, if anything that I said, people might take light too, and uh, that um, I, I hope you know that we as a society will will move forward. I appreciate you you let me talk about it for a bit. Of course, of course. Thank you. I'm thankful to Garrett for joining me on this podcast and for him sharing his experience. I actually met Garrett just before the incident he shared with us about getting jumped after that Mardi Gras ball, and that was a difficult season for him and those close to him. And the sad part is that Garrett's experience is experienced by many people within the LGBTQ community, both through micro and macro aggressions every single day. On a macro level, we see this through violence, protests, even harassment of people in the LGBTQ community. Garrett's story is an example of that, which is a problem. And that's something that all of us, whether conservative, progressive, or somewhere in between can agree on. There is no room for violence against any person, including those in the LGBTQ community. We agree that these type of microaggressions need to stop. Where most Christians disagree, however, is on the idea of full inclusion, particularly on the issue of same-sex marriage and the ordination of gay people. And it is when it comes to the issue of full inclusion that the people of the LGBTQ community experience microaggressions, especially from the church, a lot more often. Now, let me explain. When I look in the mirror, most days, I see myself as someone who is not only called to ministry, but most days I see myself as someone who is gifted in ministry to to be a a good church leader, an effective church leader. But I have to tell you, There are some people that I have met, whether it was when I was in seminary or maybe people who are currently in seminary right now, who are very gifted beyond my own abilities and are called without a shadow of a doubt to ministry. Compared to them, I feel like my ministry gifts and abilities are minuscule, yet they are told that they cannot serve the church in an ordained capacity because of their sexual orientation. Let me give you another example of microaggressions like this. I have a friend in Texas who has been a worship leader at a large church for a long time, who through worship leading has led many people towards a deeper relationship with Jesus. He is one of those worship leaders who when you look at him, when you meet him, you know that God is so clearly moving through him. And yet, when he came out to his church, he was told that he could no longer serve as a worship leader as long as he identified himself as a gay man. I can go on and on and on with stories of people who are clearly either called to ministry or called to serve in the church in some capacity or another, and yet they are told that they cannot because of their sexual orientation. And usually what they are told is that they cannot serve in ministry because their sexual orientation goes against the Bible. Just a couple of months ago, a friend shared a story with me that truly broke my heart. One of her really good friends had been attending a church for about two years, along with her spouse and her son. One day, she received an email from her pastor, basically telling her that in order for her to be able to continue to be a part of the church, 
She had to repent and adhere. And I'm quoting that part. Repent and adhere to certain expectations that were set up by the church. As I kept reading that email, I came across a line that to this day I am still in disbelief. It says this. You understand that we recognize your decision to pledge your life in marriage to another woman as an act of disobedience to God's word. According to Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. At this time, here's a line that really stood out to me. At this time, we perceive that you have decided to reject the command of Scripture. Now, this is someone who is genuinely seeking after the kingdom of God, and yet the church asked her essentially to cease and desist certain parts of her life if she wanted to continue to be involved because of their interpretation of Scripture. See, one of the most common microaggressions members of the LGBTQ experience is from the church or church people or, or just Christians in general who throw Scripture at them and tell them that because of their sexual orientation, they are rejecting what the Bible has to say and therefore cannot be a part of the church. In other words, no matter how much you love God, you are expected to change a part of who you are that you cannot change in order to actually have a relationship with God. Can you imagine if someone said that to you about your race or your skin color or anything else about you that you cannot change? It would be heartbreaking. Day after day, I hear of churches, Christians, and other religious institutions who continue to spread that message. But let me ask you, does the Bible really say that homosexuality is a sin? Does it really say that? I want to tackle that question by looking at uh, seven different scriptures that people tend to use to speak out against homosexuality. So let's begin at the beginning of scripture, at the beginning of the Bible, by looking at some of the verses found in the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is uh, the third book in the Bible, so it's early on in the Bible. And um, before I read the verses, before I read these two verses that are traditionally used, uh, let me give you some background on the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus is traditionally known by scholars as the priestly manual. Basically, it's a user manual for the priests of Israel. And it focuses on doing three things. And this is an oversimplification, but just go with me for a second. The first thing it focuses on is on reminding the people that God is holy, that God is different, and that God, uh, that as God's people, they need to strive towards being more holy, more like God, but never for the purposes of becoming God, only for the purposes of becoming more like God. The second thing it focuses on is on outlining laws, rituals, and prescriptions for how uh, the Israelites are supposed to live in the wilderness. Now, if you have spent much time in the Bible, you know that the Israelites were once slaves in Egypt. Then a guy named Moses freed them from slavery, right? Goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and uh, leads them through the wilderness and eventually to the edge of the promised land. A major purpose of this book of Leviticus was to help the Israelites understand who they needed to be and what they needed to do while they were in the wilderness. So it was almost a manual for life in the wilderness. The third thing it focused on was on preparing the Israelites to be different in the promised land by setting guidelines for things like sexual relationships, outlining family dynamics, providing dietary laws, and even defining how they were to treat people, the, treat the very people they would encounter in the promised land. In other words, it was not only a book of the wilderness, it was a book of preparation for when they arrived in the Holy Land. Like I said, this is an oversimplification of the book of Leviticus, but overall, these are the three main things that the book of Leviticus focuses on. 
The other thing I need you to understand about Leviticus is that it's divided into, most people say two sections. I argue that it's divided into three sections. So the first section is known as a priestly code, and it's comprised of the first 16 books of the, of the 16 chapters of the book of Leviticus. And this section focuses on the idea that priests are set aside and are responsible for moving towards holiness, becoming more like God, right? And they do this for the sake of the Israelites and on behalf of the Israelites. The second section, it's called the Holiness Code, and those are chapters 17 through 26. Now, this section acknowledges that, yes, the priests are set aside and uh, they're responsible for moving towards holiness, but so is all of Israel. This section, this section focuses on the idea that all people had a responsibility to move towards holiness, to be more like God. And as we read this section, we get the sense that God has a special purpose for Israel. And because of that, God needed them to be different, not only in the wilderness, but also when they arrived in the promised land. Now, the third, the third section is actually small. It's just one chapter. It's chapter 27. And uh, this chapter basically provides rules for the exchange of gifts and possessions between the Israelites. It's, a, it's a, uh, just one short chapter. So these are the three sections in the book of Leviticus. Now, this is a lot of information in a very small amount of time. But these are the basics of what the book of Leviticus is about. What I need you to know is that when it comes to scriptures used to speak against homosexuality, both of the verses that come from Leviticus are in the second section of Leviticus, which, again, focuses on the need for people to be set apart from the norms of society in the promised land, right? It calls them to be different from the people that they were about to encounter in the promised land. So let me read these two verses to you. The first one comes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then I'll flip over a couple pages. And the next one is Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, many of my more conservative friends look at these two texts in the midst of what the holiness section is about and claim that very clearly the Bible speaks against homosexuality. And I will concede that if we stop there, they seem to be correct. The Bible says it, therefore we have to believe it, right? But there is so much more that still needs to be asked and said of these texts. For example, if these verses are about the Israelites not giving into societal norms that they were about to encounter in the promised land, then we have to ask the question, what is the societal norm that these verses are talking against or about? In other words, do these verses really talk about homosexuality in the way that we understand homosexuality today? Or do they speak to a societal practice that was common to a very specific people, right? Those in the, in the promised land in a very specific time frame around the late 13th century BCE that has nothing to do with our understanding of homosexuality today. Now, for the sake of clarity, let me use the words of Reverend Adam Hamilton, the senior pastor of Church of the Resurrection. He says, we have to ask ourselves this. Are these stories for a particular people in a particular time or for all people and for all times? See, I believe that these verses were for a particular people in a particular time. Because when we dig deep into the social norms that these verses seem to be pointing to, we really get the sense that these verses are not talking against homosexuality, but rather against things like gang rape and using sexual intercourse to assert dominance over another person which were both very common practices among the people living in the promised land. And we actually get two examples of this 
directly out of Scripture. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will give you a, a, a quick rundown. Basically, the Bible tells us that these two men or two angels show up in a town called Sodom, and they end up staying in the house of a guy named Lot. Now, right before they go to bed, we're told that young, old, and I'm quoting this, young, old, all the people to the last man came to Lot's house and kept harassing and threatening Lot to throw these two men out so that they could get to know these men. Now, uh, the, the word to know in Greek is the word yada, which translates to have intimate relations. So essentially, all the men of Sodom have come to the Lot's house with the intent of gang raping these guys. And we have to ask the question, why? Was Sodom just a city filled with gay men eager to have sex with anyone who came into town? Or was there something more? You have to understand that this mob showing up to gang rape these two men or these two angels had nothing to do with fulfilling their own sexual desires. It did, however, have everything to do with establishing dominance over these outsiders, over these foreigners, including Lot and his family. See, a social norm of the promised land in the 13th century BC uh, was for men to gang rape visitors, foreigners, and others so that they could assert their dominance in society and therefore keep away any outside threats. Which means that through this lens, verses like the ones we read in Leviticus are not speaking against loving, committed, intimate, lifelong homosexual relationships. Rather, they condemn acts like gang rape and non-consensual sex, specifically used to assert dominance over another person. Now, if you don't believe me, there is another example of this. In Judges chapter 19, there is a very similar story where once again, visitors show up to a town and they stay at a man's house. While there, a mob shows up, a mob of men shows up, seeking to assert their dominance by raping these visitors. Only this time, instead of the mob being stopped, like in the previous story, the mob is able to get a hold of the visitor's concubine. And we're told, and I'm quoting this directly from scripture, they wantonly raped her and abused her all through the night until morning. If you keep reading, we're told that the next day, she was found dead by the door at the house. Now, time and time again, we get the sense that the social norm of the time was for men to assert dominance over visitors by gang raping them as a sign of strength in an attempt to scare off anyone who might try to enter their community and overthrow them. Let me be very clear. Understanding our context or the context of scripture, the verses we read in Leviticus are not speaking against homosexuality. The plea in these verses is for the people of God to be diametrically opposed to the societal norm of establishing dominance over others using sex. And I think that at the end of the day, all of us, whether we are conservative or progressive or somewhere in between, we can all agree to be diametrically opposed to this social norm. Now look, let me pause here for a second and acknowledge that this part has been very heavy so far. And if you need to pause and process, feel free to do so. Let me just add one more thing before you do that. Today, even some of my most conservative colleagues would agree that these Old Testament verses are not so black and white when it comes to speaking about homosexuality, which is why more and more recently, churches who use scripture to oppose homosexuality have stopped using these Old Testament uh, verses and have started focusing on verses from the New Testament instead. Case in point, the email I shared earlier. 
When her church sent her that email, they only referred to New Testament verses throughout the entire email, because most scholars tend to agree that uh, there is uh, more to these verses in the New Testament than we in the Old Testament than we once thought. That maybe these Old Testament scriptures aren't really saying what we thought they were saying for a long time. So let's use this to pivot. Let's move on to the New Testament and talk about the scriptures that were used in that email. So let's begin by using two of the, the scriptures that they talked about that tend to be grouped together. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. So let's begin by reading them. And let's read 1 Timothy first. Ahora bien, sabemos que la ley es buena, si se aplica como es debido. Tengamos en cuenta que la ley no ha, no ha instruido para los justos, sino para los desobedientes y rebeldes para los impios y pecadores, para los irreverentes y profanos. La ley es para los que maltratan a sus propios padres, para los asesinos, para los adúlteros y los homosexuales, para los traficantes de esclavos, los embusteros y los que juran en falso. En fin, la ley es para todo lo que está en contra de la sana doctrina, enseñada por el glorioso evangelio que el Dios bendito me ha confiado. Okay, so... I know that exercise was a little bit silly, and many preachers have used a bit like this uh, before to, as an example to talk about the issues with verses like 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. But here's why I use this bit, and here's why I read that Bible verse in Spanish. When it comes to the Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek, which is what we just read from. And in order for them to be in English, in a language that you and I can understand today, the Bible first had to be translated multiple times by multiple people through multiple languages before it became what it is today. Which means that, uh, means that what we tend to quote today, right, when we quote the Bible, we're, we're simply quoting a translation of the original text. We're not quoting the original text. We're quoting a translation of the original text. So when we say things like the Bible says this and the Bible says that, we have to wonder what the original language said because things always get lost in translation. Now, let me give you an example of this. About 10 years or so ago, I was asked to go on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic to serve as a translator. Since Spanish is my native language and I'm very fluent, I quickly agreed. Now, the first night we were there, our team asked me to find out when breakfast would be served so that everyone could wake up on time. So I went up to the pastor and I asked him a very simple question. A question. ¿A qué hora es el almuerzo? So in Mexico, this means what time is breakfast? And you can go to any restaurant in Mexico, ask that question, and they'll tell you what time breakfast is. But in the Dominican Republic and in many South American countries, the exact same phrase, literally the exact same phrase means what time is lunch? Now, I'm sure you can imagine the confusion that followed when I was led to believe that our first meal of the day after traveling so long would not be served until noon the next day. The same word meant two different things, which meant we were talking about two different meals. Now, here's what I'm trying to get at. That night, it was, it was very difficult for two Spanish-speaking people to understand each other in their native languages. Now, can you imagine how much more difficult it is for us to look at the Bible and compile as much context as possible so that we can then rewrite the Bible in a language that we can understand today? I mean, this is very difficult work, which is why when we quote our English Bibles, which have been translated throughout the years multiple times, we have to be 
cautious. Now, let me explain why all of this is important and why this matters. Multiple translations today, including the NIV, which is what I read in Spanish to you, is, uses the word homosexual in either one or both of these passages, the 1 Corinthians and the 1 Timothy. And because of this, many Christians today argue that the Bible is very clear about its stance against homosexuality. But remember, our English versions are merely a translation of the original text. And here's why this matters. The word homosexual did not make its way into the Bible until 1946. And the reason it did was because of a Greek word that is used in both 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. And this word is arsenakotai. Now, scholars agree that Paul probably made up this word, or, or at least coined this word, arsenakotai, because aside from these two instances, again, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, this word is not used anywhere else. So we all agree, scholars all agree, that Paul coined it. But what we do not agree on is on the meaning of this word. Now, for the purpose of this sermon cast, I only want to tackle two interpretations of this word. So at its root, some scholars argue that arsenakotai is derived from two words, Arson meaning men, and coitus meaning bed. Now, some scholars and theologians argue that when Paul uses the word arsenakotai, he was referring to the act of men laying in bed with other men. And it's because of this understanding that in 1946, when the Bible was being translated, scholars began to use the word homosexual in Scripture. Now, some defend this decision to use the word homosexual because for them, when the book of Leviticus was translated from Hebrew to Greek, the word arson and koitos were placed next to each other. Their argument is that Paul didn't so much make up a brand new word, but rather that Paul created a compound word, simply putting those two words together that were already put together in Leviticus, and therefore speaking against homosexuality, which again is just one interpretation of many. The problem with this interpretation, at least in my opinion, of the word arsenakotai is that we have already established that the book of Leviticus was not speaking against loving, committed, intimate, lifelong same-sex relationships, but rather against things like gang rape and non-consensual sex, which means that through this lens, right, this argument that 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 are speaking against homosexuality because they use this word that was used in the Old Testament to speak against homosexuality, like, that just doesn't line up. Remember, I told you many scholars agree and many Christians today agree that the Old Testament doesn't talk against homosexuality. Let me give you another interpretation of this word, arsenakotai. And once again, uh, as everything else that I have argued today, it requires us to understand context and culture. Now, at the time that these letters were written, there was a very common Greco-Roman practice called pederasty, in which an adult man would take under his wing a young man and teach him how to be a Greek or a Roman man. Now, this older man, with the consent of the young boy's parents, would be responsible for teaching this boy how to fight, how to deal with finances, how to understand law, and essentially what it mean, meant to be a Greco-Roman a man in the Greco-Roman world. But it also had a dark side. It was common in these pederasty relationships, not always, but very common, that part of the responsibilities of, the, responsibilities of this young boy was to please the older man sexually, which has led many scholars and theologians to argue that maybe what Paul was referring to was these pederasty relationships. Let me explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 scripture uh, of Scripture, uh, Paul pairs the word arsenakotai with another Greek word, malakoi, which translates to young, effeminate man. Now, some scholars believe that in pairing these two words, 
Paul was referring to the young boy in the pederasty relationship as the Malakoi, and the older mentor, uh, the mentor-like figure, as the Arsenakotai, who would take advantage of the younger boy. In other words, scholars argue that Paul was speaking against these young men being taken advantage of sexually, which, if you think about it, is in line with everything else we have said today. The reality is, once we dig deeper, these passages from 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, they're not so clear-cut. And anyone who tells you that it's black and white, there's no other way to see it, that they're missing out on seeing so much more from the text. Okay, so let's talk about the last scripture that most people use. Now, up until this point, scholars, like I've said before, scholars on both sides of the argument would argue that the possibilities I have laid before you are very much real possibilities. Because as I pointed out, they only... Um, they, they, these, these New Testament verses tend to point to the Old Testament verses that we said don't speak against homosexuality. But when it comes to Romans, it's this text that is most commonly used to speak against homosexuality. So let's read that really quickly. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling immortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error." Let me say this. First, I, along with many scholars, believe that in Romans chapter 1, Paul is not talking against homosexuality, but rather voicing his opposition of people's idolization of sex and pleasure by placing those desires above everything else, including their marriages and their families. Now, contextually, when you read those verses in light of the entire chapter, even in the entire book of Romans, this is very much a fair interpretation. But for the purposes of, of this sermon cast, I don't want to go too far into this, because the second thing I want to say is that I'm willing to concede that it's possible that Paul could be talking against homosexual behavior here. I'm not saying that he is. I'm simply saying that it's possible. If that were the case, even if Paul were taking a clear stance against homosexuality here, I cannot help but ask a, a very important question here. What do we do with the fact that there are verses in the Bible that we no longer adhere to? Let me give you some examples. A clear example of this can be found in our United Methodist Book of Discipline, which, as stated earlier, is the United Methodist Church's instrument for setting forth laws, plan, polity, and processes. Now, let me read you something that stands out to me every time that I read through our Book of Discipline. In paragraph 162, section J, it says this, We support efforts to stop violence and other forms of coercion against all persons, regardless of sexual orientation. Now, even my most conservative colleagues would agree with this statement, that gay people should be loved and welcome in the church. They would also agree that we need to support efforts to stop any type of violence, any sort of violence against gay people. We can agree on this. But let me show you how even agreeing on this to quote the email that I referenced earlier, is a rejection of scripture. 
Let's go back to Leviticus 20, 13 for a second. It says this. I'm going to read it again. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Now, let me be clear about two things. First, none of my more conservative colleagues would say that a gay person should be put to death. And second, as I pointed out earlier, even our book of discipline in the United Methodist Church agrees that gay people should not be put to death for being gay. And if you also agree, then we need to ask ourselves a very important question. Isn't our stance against violence towards the LGBTQ community a rejection of Leviticus 20.13, assuming we see that scripture as speaking against homosexuality? Now, I hate to break it to you, but we do this regarding many parts of scripture. Leviticus 11, that gives us dietary laws. It says we're not allowed to eat shellfish. And yet here in Louisiana, we're about to eat pounds and pounds and pounds of crawfish. Matthew chapter 5 speaks against divorce and adultery. And I know lots of people who have been divorced and who have had affairs who are very active in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 forbids women from teaching men. And yet today there are many organizations, including churches, effectively being led by women. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 talks about the need for slaves to listen to their masters. And there's so many other uh, uh, parts of scripture that affirm slavery. And yet today, generations have fought hard to end all kinds of slavery. The reality is that throughout history, we have all had to wrestle with Scripture and uh, have decided if the things we we read uh, were meant for a particular people in a particular time, or if they were meant for all people and for all time. And here's what I find even more interesting. If we pay attention, we see this process of discernment play out even in the Bible. In Acts chapter 15, which is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, there's an event known by scholars as the Jerusalem Council. Now, at the time, there was a big debate happening on whether Gentiles or non-Jewish people, which is where the church was growing, had to be circumcised or not. The more traditional church leaders argue that God had made this command very clear from the very beginning and that all people who follow God should be circumcised. But Paul, Peter, Barnabas, and a couple others argued the opposite. They argued that the new Gentiles, Gentile believers should not be expected to be circumcised. By the end of this council, they sent news to the church in Antioch, uh, Syria, and Cilicia, uh, telling them that they were no longer expected to be circumcised. Now, all of this is in Acts chapter 15, and I recommend you go read it because it's a fascinating read. But perhaps what I find even so uh, most fascinating about it is the fact that it was the church leaders, not God, It was the church leaders who decided after much prayer, debate, study, conversations, arguments, uh, that they they had the authority to no longer require circumcision of the new uh, Gentile believers. Which remember, this was something that God had directly said to the Israelites. This was required of them. And yet the church leader said, maybe not anymore. The reality is that from biblical times to modern day, the church has wrestled with our understanding and our interpretation of scripture. And we have over and over again, prayerfully prayerfully discerned whether or not to continue upholding certain things. And when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, I believe we too have the authority to do the same. But it must be done through proper discernment, in community, and never lightly, taking it as serious as that Jerusalem council. And for me, it's important that we do this work because there are people in the LGBTQ community with whom God wants to have a relationship with. And for many of them, 
The only way that will happen is if churches like us are willing to make room in our theology for full inclusion. And I don't know about you, but I want to make space for that to happen. As I close out, I want to say a couple things. First, if you are struggling with everything that we've talked about, I want to make sure you know that I am not trying to convince you or trying to change your mind right now. It would be unfair of me to expect you to change your mind after having a one-way conversation called a sermon. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, let's talk. Let's, let's, let's have some communication going. Just email us at info midcity.church, and I will gladly uh, have these conversations with you. Second, let me say this. As long as I'm the pastor at Mid-City Church, we will be an affirming and welcoming church for all people. Now, I have to recognize that in the United Methodist Church, we currently... Um, we are currently trying to figure out where we stand on this issue. And so our current book of discipline, I'm going to read this to you. Our current book of discipline says, says, says a couple different things. It says ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted by our ministers and shall not be conducted in our churches. It also says uh, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be certified as candidates ordained as ministers, or even appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. So right now our church has this stance, but there are many in the church who are fighting, like myself, to uh, have this stance changed. And those numbers are growing, and hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll be able to become a more affirming church. But until then, as long as I am the pastor at Mid-City Church, we will be an affirming and welcoming church for all people. Three, and this one's really important for me. To make room for all people does not mean that we throw out all sexual ethics. See, I believe that regardless of our sexual orientation, God calls us, calls all of us, to holiness in our sexuality. In other words, all sex, gay or straight, must be practiced only within the confines of committed, intimate, loving, lifelong relationships. And that goes for all people. Fourth, and I'll close with this. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community, I want you to know that you are compatible with the kingdom of God. Let me explain what that means. Something that I truly value in life is this idea of kingdom diversity, which for me means that the kingdom of God is more diverse than we can even begin to imagine. Now, this is based off of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where we're told that John looked up and saw a great multitude of, of uh, a multitude in heaven that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne of God and before Jesus. Now, every time I read this scripture, what I hear is that God has welcomed into God's kingdom, into heaven, a diversity of people that goes beyond John's ability to articulate. Go and read it. It's a beautiful image, not just of how many people are there, but of how diverse the kingdom of God actually is. Now, I've got to tell you, as the church continues to talk about human sexuality, I can't help but wonder if our current stance has kept us from seeing what John saw, which is a kingdom that is diverse beyond our wildest imaginations, beyond our ability to articulate. And I don't know about you, but imagining heaven for any less than what it actually is feels like a disservice to our faith and to God. Which leads me to this, and I'm going to close with this. If the kingdom of God is more diverse than we can even begin to imagine, then maybe it's time for us as a church to make room for full inclusion. And maybe, just maybe, it's time for the church to reflect, here on earth as it is in heaven, the beautiful diversity that is the kingdom of God. May it be so. 
Amen. I hope you found this sermon to be meaningful and relevant to your life. If you'd like to dive deeper, I invite you to visit midcity.church slash sermoncast and click on the current sermon series. There you can find a home sheet for this sermon that includes the scriptures that we talked about, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge to live out this week. While you're on the website, if you'd like to make a financial contribution to our ministry here at Mid-City Church, you can click the Give button in the top right corner. If you're new to the sermon cast, I invite you to text the word HERE, H-E-R-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662 and fill out a Connect card so that we can get to know you. I'm so glad you joined us today, and I look forward to seeing you next week.